Welcome to the Davidson Day Community Podcast. My name is Pete Moore, Head of School at Davidson Day. Each episode, you will meet different members of our supportive and diverse community. You'll hear fascinating stories from parents, board members, alumni, and the wonderful people who work at Davidson Day. episode of the Davidson Day Community Podcast, I had the honor of speaking with Davidson Day parent, David Holden. David is president of MSI Defense Solutions here in the Lake Norman area. David shares his journey about how his childhood passion for engineering led him to pursue a career in automotive racing and how it evolved to launching his own company. And so David, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. So the first question I have is, where did you grow up and what are some of your fondest memories from your childhood? So I grew up around the Baltimore, Washington area in Maryland. Early on, my family had a dairy farm, and it was a small one, right? But um, back in the 40s and 50s, my grandparents had dairy cows, and then I heard all these stories, and then they had a, a farm, and we had some construction equipment, so I learned you know, driving tractors and things like that. So that was enjoyable as a kid. I, I always focused on mechanical things. And then we moved out to the suburbs, which at the time was in a place called Howard County, more farmland, and a place called Columbia, Maryland. And I went to school there and then went to a Jesuit high school in Towson, Maryland, so more more properly in Baltimore City, so less farmland. But always liked the, the tractor kind of fixing stuff thing. And I, I'm a mechanical engineer uh, background, and so that, I think, was kind of the the start of my interest in that it was having a family that had a background with tractors and equipment. And when I was growing up, we would build, you know, BMX tracks with the tractors because it was great because here's all this land and here's all this dirt and these tractors over here and we can all drive it. And so my cousins and I would always go and mess around with our bikes and, and try to go faster and change sprockets and tires and things like that. So, you know, it was me, my brother and my two cousins and it was a blast and we had a great time. And you mentioned how much you enjoy fixing things. Do you have a memory of some of the earliest things you enjoyed fixing? Yeah. So my uncle, my uncle John, it was um, kind of took over my grandparents' farm. And so he started getting into contracting and he had all the tractors and the equipment. Somehow he found a Ford Cleveland engine, a V8 engine. It was in sports cars at the time called a DiDomaso Pantera. So it was Ford sold it to them to put it in there. And and he basically said, here's the tools, here's the engine on a stand, take it apart and put it back together. Oh, wow. And so I tore this thing down completely, and then I put it all back together. And I think I only had like three parts left over, <laughs> right? So we didn't get to fire it up or anything like that, but it was really kind of one of those as I was taking it apart, he would be over my shoulder looking, okay, what you're doing there, that's the crankshaft, those are the main connecting rod bolts, and et cetera, et cetera, and the main bearings and, and the journal bearings. And, and it was really a learning experience, right? And so I'm 10 or 12 at the time, and so he's doing something on the tractors, and then you know, an hour later he comes over, checks on how I'm doing, and I've got the toolbox over there, and wow. it's, I'm sure there was stuff everywhere, right? But it was an amazing thing to just, here's this engine, it's, it's somebody with was throwing it away. It was junk, but he brought it back. And so that's kind of my, it was the, uh, I don't think he thought anything of it. It was just probably to occupy me, right? Because mm -hmm. he needed something to get me out of the way or something. But but it was an amazing thing because then that really was stimulating, right? So before I'm just messing around with stuff that he's given me and then it's like, take it apart, put it back together, understand it, right? So that was fostering that understanding of, of how that goes and working with your hands. And, and so you've got You've got folks that are working with their hands, right? And so my uncle and my mother, they were right siblings, and and my uncle was always a hands-on kind of guy, dirty, dirty hands, dirty fingers, 
dirt under his fingernails, right? And my mom was college educated. She was a scientist for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, oh, wow. or, uh, you know, microbiology, chemistry, and all those other things. And her background was the labels that we take for granted on food now are like nutrition labels, mm-hmm. how many calories and servings. That was what she invented, if oh, you want to wow. call it. That. So that was her government office, and mm-hmm. there were like three or four or five people there. So. You know, sometimes we would go to her office, and my brother and I would would go down and hang out. They had a computer that was really old, like early days. Mm-hmm. You know, operating system. You had to write and type code, and 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 that was amazing. And then I'm going off and putting engines back together that I've just torn down. Right. So it was a really kind of a a stimulating mentally exercise for me to kind of figure out if I wanted to be an engineer or not even if I was figuring it out. It might have steered me onto the path of engineering Mm -hmm. because kind of seeing what computers and things like that can do and test equipment in a lab and, you know, breaking down how many calories are in an orange or whatever. Yeah. And then, okay, here's something that's mechanical. It's it's the metal and, and, and bolts and torque and how does that all work? Kind of putting that all together, I think maybe kind of shaped me as an engineering person if I didn't have any direction as as probably a lot of young people didn't have or don't have. That exposure kind of I don't know, coalesce that mentality of mentality and uh, of engineering mentality and and of really putting together being an engineer, uh, an automotive engineer, which is what I wanted to be when I grew up. I chose to go to college for mechanical engineering to input into automotive engineering and kind of be in motorsports as a starting career. That those early days when I was really young in my in my middle school, probably days late elementary school, were really formative. I think to to kind of make me the mechanical-minded person that I am. That leads me into my next question. How did you choose Lehigh University as the option to study? Yeah, so being on the East Coast and in Northeast, there were several universities that were really good at mechanical engineering. It's funny, we had a short list that I had applied to, Bucknell University, Drexel University in Philadelphia, Lehigh University, University of Maryland as well. And it was funny, Bucknell sadly got excluded because I was going to have to drive about four hours to get there and I have to wake up really early for a nine o'clock appointment. <laughs> and I and I woke up, I was like, I don't feel like doing that. So <laughs> they, off they go. And Drexel and Philadelphia were down there touring. And then there's, it's in the city of Philadelphia, like in the heart of the city. And there's, we're standing on a corner about to cross the street onto the campus and there's, you know, empty gun casings on the ground. Oh. And, and that really turned my mom off of, mm-hmm. of the whole place. But the Lehigh was Interestingly, it was the connection between Lee Iacocca, Roger Penske, and Al Holbert. And so all three of those were kind of really popular in auto industry and in motorsports and in racing. Mm-hmm. And so I had known of them and watched them and all, and they all had gone to Lehigh University. Mm-hmm. So it was a solid engineering school, uh, a very capable engineering curriculum. What I originally thought was going to be automotive engineering steered more towards mechanical engineering. GMI at the time, General Motors Institute, which is now Kettering, was also one of them, but that was in Detroit, and and that had its own kind of downsides mm-hmm. in, in 1990 and 1989 mm-hmm. when I was choosing where to go. But Lehigh was really this, it had a constellation of people who had done really well in that industry, and in the industry of business as well as engineering. And so I, I looked on those folks as leaders, and I thought, hmm, if they went there, well, maybe there's a chance for me to go there and, and get a good education and be something someday. And I think I did get a great education there. I gravitated away from automotive engineering to a less specific mechanical engineering degree, bachelor's and master's, but 
it's more applicable. And I thought, okay, I can I can do something with a mechanical engineering degree. And even if I don't end up in automotive at the time, it, it was ebbing and flowing, right? I can still do something with a mechanical engineering degree. So that was my thought process. And that's how I ended up there, even though it was in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. It is, it is in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, which was a steel town. When I visited there, it was kind of overcast and gray and cold and like a lot of steel towns are yeah. in the Rust Belt. And um, education and experience there are second to none, I would say. And then you end up working for Joe Gibbs Racing a number of years later. What was the pathway from sort of graduation to working with Joe Gibbs Racing? Right. So I'm writing letters. So back in the 90s, got to remember, there was no you know major email, internet, website thing that you can just find. There's no Twitter. There's no nothing. So I'm writing letters to Formula One race teams. I'm getting tours. I graduate with my master's in 1996. I've arranged all these tours in Europe for Formula One shops. Oh, wow. And so we went to McLaren, Benetton Formula One, Tom Walkinshaw Racing, Williams Formula One, Gordon Murray was a, at McLaren mm-hmm. Formula One at the time, so he responded. I mean, everybody was very nice and very cordial and very polite. I've got type letters still to this day of of things, and it's really awesome. They're sending McLaren sends their press packet to me as a like a hey, you might find this interesting. It's so wow. they're of this car they're going to make called the McLaren F1 <laughs> road car, right? It's iconic, and I went and toured um, the Formula One race teams and went to the 24 Hours of the Mall. In the summer of 1996, and I realized that it was going to be, I was going to be engineer number 487 mm-hmm. or whatever at a Formula One race team. Fortunately, I had some friends that knew General Motors racing people, and they were also amping up their um, their staffing of engineers to their race teams. And so I came to visit Charlotte, and I was engineer number one or number two at a race team. And the first job I had was a little place called Statesville at Larry Hedrick Motorsports, just north of here. And I was engineer number one. So I could do data acquisition. I could do structural engineering. Wow. I was doing machining. I was programming machines. I was working with sponsors. I was a renaissance engineer, which is the term that I like to call it, because I, I had to know a lot about a lot. And so it, it gave me a lot of exposure. That that team for a couple of years was great. Driver change, sponsors change. And so I was hired by Richard Childress Racing in Welcome, North Carolina, outside of Winston-Salem. And so I was there for six years. So Dale Earnhardt was one of our drivers. Mike Skinner was the other driver when I started there. We hired Kevin Harvick and and a bunch of other folks. And um, we had a great time. A lot of success, a lot of development during the time of NASCAR's ascendancy there. Mm -hmm. Dale Earnhardt's death in 2001 was a big, big deal. I can't imagine, yeah. It goes without saying, but being on the team that day and the day after, that was that was a, a shock, really. Mm-hmm. It was. And and we had to figure out how to survive. And and I think Richard and the whole team there did exactly that. We adapted and we overcame that big challenge. And we had a new team that we were going to start. Kevin Harvick was going to be the driver. He flipped over into driving the number three car, which was a good wrench car, which got renamed or renumbered to the 29 car. But that time and that adversity, if you want to call it, of having to figure that out on the fly, knowing that there's a race the next weekend and the next weekend and the next weekend, that's one of the bigger challenges I think anybody could face. Yeah. And, I mean, Dale was a – he was a legend. He was amazing. And so I, I worked at uh, RCR until 2004, and Joe Gibbs Racing hired me at the end of 2004 to come and work. Um, they were expanding to add another car, and so I was – hired to be kind of one of the lead engineers. We had a, a nice 
I'll call it a triumvirate of engineers. We had a design manager, which was me. I, I manage all the mechanical engineering design. We had a, a trackside engineering and um, simulation engineering engineer. And then we had kind of the lead engineer who ran interference for us while he was in the meetings we were doing work. And it was it was a fantastic layout. And Tony Stewart won the championship the mm-hmm. next year. We had an amazing arrangement of talented people, talented machinists, talented mechanics, great pit crew, all of those things from top to bottom. The organization there is par excellence. Mm-hmm. I, I, I consider that from 2004, late 2004 until the end of 2008, as much growth opportunity for me and experience for me as understanding what the impact of people mm-hmm. are. And really, you always know that people are the thing, but Joe and JD lived it, and it was the um, it was the drumbeat on your shoulder all the time. People, 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 and and the camaraderie of of that group there I, is really amazing. And it's and it's I look back on it fondly to this day. I'm not in racing anymore, but I really miss the people mm-hmm. from racing, right? Because people are 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 really focused. They're driven. They're competitive, and that was just an amazing time. But somewhere along the way there, kind of at the, in the middle of 2006, I met some folks from the Marine Corps, mm-hmm. and I had a realization. I don't want to say that it was a mature realization, but it was a different realization that I was in the entertainment business mm-hmm. in racing, and could I apply some of those things and that knowledge to uh, to solutions that could help soldiers yeah. and Marines. I'd like to go back a little bit. In the like, Formula One is very popular here in the United States now. Back in the 90s, how did you become such a fan of, of F1? So again, I think it goes back to that engineering mindset and that mm-hmm. technology. So I was buying. There was a, a bookstore that had uh, magazines from England, so they mm-hmm. had Formula One trade magazines every couple of weeks, and I was going to the uh, spend seven or eight or nine dollars or whatever getting it. And then Barnes and Noble started carrying it. Right, Barnes and Noble started to be a thing, and so you could get these magazines, and it was like, oh, amazing! You're you're forking over fourteen dollars for a <laughs> magazine of race car engineering yeah. or something like that, but. At the time, that was the only way to get all that news because the internet as we know it today didn't yeah. exist, right? And I would watch sports car racing from Le Mans at 3 in the morning. And Bob Newber and all these guys from ESPN would be on. It was like in the middle of you know, 3 to 4 a.m., they would have a one-hour update from the 24 hours, right? And so here's Al Holbert and Derek Bell and Chip Robinson and all these guys running the Porsche 962s and 956s. And, and that was amazing to me. I mean, it was incredible. And my mom would be like, what are you doing downstairs and, and at three in the morning? I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm just checking this out. And and so I can remember having, we had an old cable box and it was like a push button selector mm-hmm. cable box. But that was it back in the day. You had to really go and hunt that information mm-hmm. to know where you could watch it, to know where you could see it. And so that was really kind of how I got into it. And it just, I gravitated to it because of the technology, because yeah. A human could design something that was faster or that some other human could use to go faster, to win a race, to be competitive, to be more competitive. Yeah. I really like that. I, I really like the idea of of mono a mono kind of a thing. And I could be a more clever engineer or a better engineer or a faster engineer yeah. and give an advantage, create an advantage that, that could win. Because the reason I ask is I – Growing up in Australia, we ended up getting the the Formula One Grand Prix probably in the mid-80s in Adelaide. Mm-hmm. And so then it was just one of the highlights of the sporting calendar. Of And otherwise, I don't, would have probably, I would never have found out about it. And yeah. and it was just the the sheer, I mean, 
the speed, but also just all everything that surrounds it, the glamour and the, you know, the international travel that's associated with it. You're in sort of Monaco one week and then Spain and then down to Australia. Like just you it was just very it was incredible to think. And then over time, Australian drivers started to do okay in mm-hmm. in F1. And so and then with the sort of drive to survive over the last few years is just sort of yeah become much more popular. But then what was that like? So then you come back to the US and then, you know, you're, I imagine you're 25, 26 at the time. And then you are basically sort of number one engineer and you're really a novice. How you, I imagine the learning curve was was pretty steep and it, it must have been also set you up well for the your rest of your career. Yeah. So when I graduated, I was 24. I came, came back from Europe, um, had come down to North Carolina, moved down here in August of 1996. And I was 24. And so I, wow. had, I had the keys to the building. I had the That's race amazing. shop. I, I was in the race shop all the time. I, I was, I was for, I'm, I'm not ashamed to say, or maybe I'm embarrassed to say, I was, I was there all the time. Like yeah. I, I did not have a life. I had no social life. I had nothing. So, but I'm learning, right? I'm running yeah. machinery. I'm able to do these things. I'm able to weld. I've got people that are around me that are wanting me to, to succeed. So they're teaching me all the other things about racing that I don't know, right? Because the difference between practically applying a degree of any any mm-hmm. kind of degree and being book smart and, and street smart, there's there's definitely a nuance to that. And so dealing with, I'm going to say, the Southern culture of racing in the 90s was not engineering focused. It was not, it was very much subjective. It was very much good old boy network is probably the expression that a lot of people would use. But it was definitely, we've always done this, so this is the way we're going to do this. Well, what have, what have you thought about it this mm-hmm. way? And so having to be able to convince someone of my opinion who might have a different opinion, they might have been racing all their lives one way, to convince them that an engineering approach is better or that it can gain them X, Y, Z advantage, maybe that kind of was a bit of a salesman's trial by fire for mm. me to, to, to convince somebody else that, that they needed to go with what I was offering rather than to do the same old thing that they wanted to do. So for me, that was um, – that was – the world was my oyster, though, because I could do whatever I wanted to do, and and had a pretty, pretty broad brush um, to touch it. And and you know, I built rigs and fixtures just to study problems and to understand things. And then I got to work with industry partners too, which was really neat because you know, there's a lot of the sponsorship game is really hard in racing anyway. But then that's if people want to write you a big check to put their name on your car and paint it their colors. But if you're trying to get something that will make you go faster that company probably doesn't have a lot of money to give you or isn't involved Mm -hmm. or interested in racing, but you really want to go faster. So that got me the opportunity to work with companies that could offer technology. And then I had to figure out how to sell that to the marketing folks. Like, hey, this is worth half of a tenth of a second per lap, but they've only got a quarter million dollars. They're not going to write you a $25 million check, but how do we work this all out and make it we get the speed, they get the benefit, what kind of marketing imagery. And so I, I learned, again, the art of, I guess, uh, salesmanship or selling that idea to try and go faster. From the engineering perspective, I wanted the technology or the raw materials or the coating or the treatment or the oil or whatever. It didn't align with the marketing dollars approach. So I had to sell that to the marketing team. And that was a learning experience and I enjoyed it and, and kind of grasped that and then never lost it. Now, sort of jumping forward, as you mentioned a little bit about sort of the the opportunity that you had, which which eventually led to your current company. And so, can you just tell us that story about 
you know, you, you're working for Joe Gibbs Racing and then you have this conversation which leads to this new chapter in your life. So we were in mid-2006, June, something like that, and, and some Marines came from Quantico, Virginia, and they're driving to Albany, Georgia. So Huntersville is about halfway along the road. And in our quality lab at Joe Gibbs Racing, one of their cousins, wives, husbands sort of relationship <laughs> was working in Albany, Georgia, and uh, recommended to these two fellows from the Marine Corps to stop and talk. So they were they were going to see this guy in the quality lab, and he said, look, I know you work with the sponsors. I know you you give tours and things like that. Would you mind touring these guys around? I don't really know them. They're they're not related to me, but you know, maybe you'll do it. And and having some family that had served previously, I'm happy to do that, sure. And and walking around a race shop in NASCAR in in the mid 2000s, I mean, it was and it still is today. Epoxy floors, amazing mm. technology, right? And I think these gentlemen were expecting it to look like a a glorified Jiffy Lube. Mm. And and so there's nothing wrong with Jiffy Lube, right? But I mean, racing is amazing. It's yeah. not a garage, and so. They saw technology. They saw all kinds of capability, and um, they were really impressed. And so they went on their way and and invited me down. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to go down and and talk to them about their problems. And they were kind enough to show me through their whole facility, which was multi million square feet of of everything that they were repairing for the Marine Corps. And and as well, that was during the uh, global war on terror. Mm-hmm. And so at the time, there were folks being decimated by IEDs, improvised electronic, uh, improvised explosive devices. And I kept wondering why we couldn't figure that out, why we couldn't solve that problem. And having some folks who were actively serving at the time, I'm like, look, racing has this technology. There's this material. Are you guys using this? Why aren't you doing that? And one of my other uncles challenged me. He said, look, if you know how to do something, solve the problem, go go after it. He encouraged me to go and, and use my brain for that. And so just like my uncle John had done, my uncle Pete had challenged me to do that. And so I took some time, went down there, and, and my wife Jennifer and I went down. And Albany is in, is kind of three hours south of Atlanta on the way to Valdosta and, and kind of the panhandle of Florida. Mm-hmm. It's not in the middle of anywhere that, <laughs> that you would go, and it's hot in the summertime. So uh, I walked through there, and they just tore me through. And I wrote a, a white paper. It was basically unsolicited you know, ideas that I had driving back from there of this technology and racing can help you contact this vendor. This technology could help you. And about a month later, after I submitted this paper to them, they came back and said, we want to start on the top of page 10. And it was a suspension problem, which I had to have them remind me what it was because I just hadn't given it no further thought, right? I had done my civil duty. And they really challenged me to do this and come up with something to help them. Race car engineers know about suspension, so it was a straightforward task for me. And then I got a call from a contracting officer, which I didn't know what that was. And then he said, look, I need to buy these things for the U.S. government. Are you a government contractor? And I said, I'm not, but I sell things for NASCAR, safety-related items and things on the side. And he said, great, we can buy things from you on credit card if you can accept credit cards, but that won't last very long. When we start needing to buy more and more of these, we're going to need to properly give you a contract. And I said, okay, well, how do I get there? And so he was fortunate, or I was fortunate that he was willing to show me how to be a contracting, a government contractor. And so here's this government contracting officer teaching a novice how to do this. And I'm learning the whole time and doing Mm -hmm. everything that I needed to do. And then, you know, we're delivering parts and they're having a positive effect. And and the first product that we made was an IED roller. And basically it was push a trolley pushed by a truck that would detonate 
improvised ex- explosive devices ahead of the truck so that the soldiers wouldn't get blown up. This, wow. this was a consumable item, right? Consumable meaning that it would get blown up and they would attach a new one. And, yeah, yeah. It, it, it was consumable in that they would blow the, that trolley up rather than themselves, and then they would need more spare parts. So it was a great business opportunity for me. And Jennifer and I were putting things together in our garage as fast as we could put them together <laughs> yeah. and send them. But it really exposed me to the opportunities that were there and, and applying technology that I already knew how to use in my mechanical engineering background to solve different problems. And so for two years, it's commonly called a side hustle now, yes. right? But that was my side hustle, right? Yeah. So I would work at Joe Gibbs Racing in the evenings and then come home and work in the, in the office over my garage. You're now a, like a successful entrepreneur, right? And it seems like early on, you know, you were building and, and fixing. And then when you became, you know, first became an engineer, you're working with marketing and there sort of seems to be seeds planted of, you know, of that sort of entrepreneurial mindset. What, how would you describe if someone said like, what's an entrepreneur? How would you describe that? An entrepreneur for me or to my, to my definition is someone who takes risks, who understands and see things in a little bit different way, sees an opportunity, sees an opportunity to help to put pieces together in a different way than they've been put together before. And so whether it's starting a new business with a new baby, but to take motorsports technology and a mindset to solve military problems, because at the time your your traditional military industrial complex is just big prime contractors that take mm-hmm. a long time to do things. And I'm bringing a motorsports mentality where if you break something on Sunday during the race, you have to fix it by the next race weekend, mm-hmm. right? So you have to be coming back with solutions. So that's a that kind of feeds a fast development cycle. So an entrepreneur, for me, sees problems differently, mm-hmm. and then they apply knowledge or tools or pieces that they know how to put together in a different way. We all have the same ingredients in our in our mental cupboard, if you will. Flowers and sugars are all the same, but putting them together, you can make different cakes and yeah, cupcakes nice. and breads and things. So to me, that entrepreneur really comes up with a new product out of those same ingredients that we all have inside of us. And what was the journey to go from, you know, you're working on a few different parts and, and doing them really well and supporting the military and then sort of just start sort of expanding what you offer as a company? Yeah, so as a starting as a suspension company, basically providing those products for IED rollers, you've you've got the opportunity to do that well. And when you do that well, then the customer says, right, you've done that product really well, but could you do electronics for us? Could you do this for us? Could you do another thing for us? Could you do and and I have this expression that it's not mine, someone else has has told me it's when you're in the when you're with your customer, you're never in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. And so if your customer is asking you to go from making suspension parts to buttercups, <laughs> uh, if they want you to make buttercups but they need a lot of them, then that's probably a good business to be in if you mm-hmm. can do that, if they if your customer likes what you do and they want you to do that. So I, I always felt like following the customer where they wanted to be and, and anticipating where they were going to be next, uh, you know, listening very well to them is 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 a really a good thing to do from a from a business perspective, hearing your customers. And so as we grew, we added vocations and capability and core competencies. And so, again, being a company of engineers and, and being an engineer myself, you know, recognizing that, hey, we need to we need to hire some really good buttercup engineers if, if that was the next thing. So we hired 
electrical engineers and we hired some more mechanical engineers and some vehicle engineers and software engineers. So that, you know, again, led us into the next phase of, of, of opportunity. And, you know, the expression, so the definition of luck is when opportunity meets preparation, yeah. right? And so when you've got this anticipation of what the customer need is and you've got the idea that you're going to be there to meet their need and you put everything in place, it's going to seem lucky. Mm-hmm. But really, you've been planning on it. You've been thinking yeah. about it and seeing that need. And so as we've grown, uh, we've gone from a suspension company to a whole vehicle manufacturer. And we do that for many people. Many prime contractors use us and rely on us to be their their engineering horsepower to build something that they can't do. They'll do the marketing and the sales of it. We sell to them, but but we're their engineering uh, back, back yeah. shop. This is sort of jumping back a little bit, I guess, to right to the formation of it. But um, MSI Defense Solutions is your company. What's MSI stand for? Motorsport Innovations. Oh, nice. And so I had the company before. When I was in NASCAR, it was called Motorsport Innovations, Inc. And uh, so that's how I started selling to the Marine Corps. And one of the visits to Albany, I can drive that road from here to Albany like the back of my hand <laughs> now. I've, I've driven it so many times, even a long time ago. I haven't been there for probably four or five years. But I noticed that Motorsport Innovations Inc.com and Motorsport Innovations Inc. was really hard for them to write on crates and packing lists and everything else. So I was down there delivering something, and the guy brought out a spray paint can, and, and he had spray painted you know, MSI on the side of these crates. And so the, the delivery that we had, he was spray painting MSI on the side. I'm like, hmm, duly noted. Yeah. We, we've got too long of a name, so we really need to fix that. So what, I took the opportunity to shorten it. Yeah, because what I really like, I was looking at your website in advance of this and just I really like the way it was framed about sort of your history of your company that you sort of take 300 years of of motorsports knowledge and sort of help sort of innovate in the sort of defence space. And, yeah. and so to that point, like what are some of the, I don't know how much you can actually share, but what are some of the things that, you know, that you have taken from motorsports and you've been able to sort of help the military with? I would certainly say that some of the materials knowledge, like as a mechanical engineer, right, you you make something out of something that's stronger or more durable or more or more um, flexible, you can definitely make some better parts in the motorsports yeah. area. So, so turning that around and turning that into like an armor plating solution for protection of soldiers, mm-hmm. that, that's been a, a, a sure success. The technologies of really machining parts and pieces. We were rapid prototyping in, in motorsports and printing parts and 3D printing parts long before the Department of Defense did. Oh wow! Yeah. And and so so now we use that as a regular tool to make parts faster. Uh, so all day long you're thinking about how do I how do I make that thing? How can I print it? How could I get it to the point of need? Because the Department of Defense has trailers basically that are set up as mini factories overseas, and so if they need to print a part or machine a part, they can immediately do that rather than having to kick an order to a, a U.S. company who has to then put it into their queue and then has to make it and, and things like that. Now, that raises all kinds of issues with intellectual property, right? Who owns that? Mm-hmm. How do you print it just one time? But the world is solving those problems, right, with documentation and how many times can you play a music file that you've downloaded. So so there's ways to solve those those challenges and really thinking in, in the ways of taking that technology and that in that pace of development, that pace of using materials and new things. We've provided them with specialty oils for, for several solutions. Normally, shock absorbers were, were just from a catalog and motorhome shocks or trucks, over-the-road trucks. And so we've delivered custom things using motorsports technologies for low friction but high durability and high temperature applications. Uh, so shock absorbers, I would say, completely. 
you know, parts and pieces and seals and material finishes and all of that technology that you learn is better in a racing world. It's also better in the military world. Anything you put on a vehicle that's good in racing is going to be good on a on a military vehicle. If you learn how to use software to simulate a motorsports vehicle, it also does really well simulating a 25,000-pound tactical vehicle. You said before you were working sort of in entertainment, and now the what you're doing is you are keeping people safe and the country safe. And one of the things that I found really you know, it was quite overwhelming being at your facility was just that you could, you were making a difference in the lives of the people who are protecting the United States. And you saw that with the different, the beautiful plaques on the wall and the messages you've received as a Mm -hmm. company. What's that like in terms of the reward you get from the things that you're creating saving people's lives? Mm Mm-hmm. I imagine that's incredibly fulfilling. It is fulfilling. And and a lot of the folks, you know, being at the top end of the company, right, people come back and they send those things to me or, or our sales team hears it. It's it's really important for me to, to pass that down to yeah. everybody, right, from the front of the building to the back of the building. Everybody in our company is important. Just like here at Davidson Day, Ms. Vicky is the face yes. of the school, right? Yeah. And when somebody walks in and they see that or the person on the receiving dock is getting something, it's really important for me to share that feedback. What's that like? It's incredible. It is really incredible to read some of those messages of for 10 years we've been doing this to protect the United States and its citizens against the enemies of the, of the United States who would do us harm. Mm-hmm. It's an incredible feeling to know that you're contributing to saving someone's life. It's an incredible feeling to see something come back that might be shot up from a battle somewhere. But when you look on the backside of it, there's no penetration of the armor. And you know that the folks got out of alive, of that alive. It's the first time that I felt it about 30 days after I did the the IED roller, the guy called me from Albany, Georgia, and he said, hey, man, we've got a hit. And I, and I was like, what did that mean if you've got a hit? And uh, I, was it popular? Did people like it? They were showing it off to you know their leadership and things, and I didn't know if that meant it was popular and well-received and it was going to go forward. And the guy was like, no, no, we, we deployed it immediately as soon as you gave us what, what we needed. And about uh, a kilometer and a half or two kilometers out of the gate, the guys hit an IED. And the only casualty of the four folks in this Humvee was a busted eardrum. An injury, no yeah. doubt. But but compared to the loss of life that was going on at the time from yeah, these IEDs, wow. it was amazing. And they showed me and shared with me how far some of the pieces had been blown up. I mean, it was 600 meters in all directions. But the Humvee didn't get blown up because it stopped the trolley yeah. that it was pushing. And so I at the time I had basically, you know, checked the block and saved four lives. Yeah. And so the gravity of that, if you stop to think about it, yeah. It will make you tear up. It will it will yeah. make you beam with pride. But it, it, I mean it, it really gets to you. Yeah. So for me, uh, I try to be an objective uh, unemotional robot. Um, <laughs> no, not really. But in order to do my job well, yeah. I've got to continue on, right? I've I've got to not get. I've got to appreciate those things. But I've got to continue because if I can do that again, I can save more. Yeah. And and if I can make ten of those systems instead of five this month, I can save more people. Yeah. I can save twice as many people. And so you start doing that math in your head about how much of an effect and an impact you can have, and how many times can you bring somebody back from a deployment safely to their family. I mean, it, it really gets to you. And so I try to make sure that our folks know that and appreciate it 
because if they're not on that front side of that communication and they don't see it, they might just think they're trading hours for money. Yeah. But what we really do at our company is we have that impact. We save those lives. We are impactful to people. And our customers, when they tell us it, it the, a couple of times our customers come to our facility and they ask to get everybody together. And that is, yeah, that is powerful. Yeah. I mean, I mean one guy basically was in the truck and he comes and he tells you all that and you're like, whoa, wow. Yeah. And, and I mean, it'll, it will, it'll tear you up. Yeah. I mean, I, I felt that just being there is just, just this, I don't know, there's this sense that you're doing something way bigger than the sum. You often hear the sum of the parts, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the number of people that work there, but actually the solutions that are going out. And what is so fascinating from sort of a, a, I guess an innovative perspective is that you're taking something from motorsports and which is incredible and we will I love motorsports and yeah. people love motorsports and then and then you're taking that thing to like apply it in situations that seem so outside the realm of racing right. and that and that is making such mm-hmm. a huge impact it's it was just a really great thing like we, we were you know this, but the people, some of the people listening is that there's an entrepreneurial class that we're teaching and we wanted the kids to see these different examples. And it was one of the most powerful we saw because of just one, the impact, but also just the, there's such an interesting application. There's, it seems like they're worlds apart, but as you say, they're yeah. very closely related. And I, I think that is what's for me, interesting in education is so many of the ideas that I have about running a school or uh, just leading my my the, our people here is comes from other industries and all oh, that's a good idea, right? Doesn't necessarily sometimes in education because it's been around for so long, it can just seem like a swapping of the same idea with the same people, and so that's mm-hmm. why sometimes gathering ideas from outside of that is is really impactful. So that was what I sort of really sort of took out of that. And so just jumping into some of the like the, the day-to-day challenges or just, I guess, the generational challenge you've had in the lifetime of your company, what are some of the biggest challenges you've had to, you've, you've faced and had to overcome? From the perspective of my company, you know, you start off as a company that's got a foundation in motorsports and we're going to be fast acting and responsive. And early on in, as a new company, you know, the establishment is like, yeah, we've seen this come and go. You'll be here until the Daytona 500 rolls around and then you'll focus again on motorsports and then you'll leave the defense industry and you won't be there for us when we need us. So we've we've kind of got through that like 5 years in I felt like we graduated mm-hmm. from that that label as yet another racing company that's trying to diversify into the defense industry and then but the racing industry will go back cuz cuz motorsports is great there's a lot of money in in motorsports there's a lot of glamour and glitz but really to be to maintain in defense industry for me, that was like a label that we had to we had to earn our way out of, and we did. Generationally, um, you know, big prime contractors had had a similar mindset, right? Who are you to tell us that we can't do anything? We're we're filling the blank prime contractor, right? We are Boeing, we are Raytheon, and, and those are great companies. I'm just picking them. They they've got a history that's that's tremendous. But can they leverage a small agile company? Can they can they do something like that with us? Um, and that was a, a bit of a of a challenge to convince them to do that. And now we're fortunate to have all of those folks as customers because they do recognize the value of partnering with a young company, a small agile company that sees things a little differently. And then I would say generationally in 
in our area, right, from a, from a labor pool perspective. We've got employees that range from brand new, fresh out of school. We've got internships, things going on with, with local colleges. And then we've got folks that are retirement age and, and their experiences and mindsets are different about work and what they do and what our mission is. And so the harmonious maintenance of, of peace in the valley, if you will, to keep everybody pulling in the same direction when you've got over 100 folks is a day-to-day challenge, right, operationally and, and to complete our mission for our customers, who's very important. It's all people. And so getting a 22-year-old engineer to work with a 65-year-old fabricator hmm. is really is really an interesting thing. But to watch the 22-year-old go down to the 65-year-old and ask for his input and develop that relationship and that trust and that to be the right word, I think, is probably vulnerable to say, I don't know everything here, mm-hmm. but you've got a lot of experience. Can you help me figure this out? That's a really cool thing to watch. Yeah. I, I really enjoy watching that. It, that, that. That's the people puzzle thing I, I really enjoy. I think that comes back to people are important. Yeah. And you mentioned that before when you were at Joe Gibbs Racing and saying that that was you know so much of it. And what, I guess, practical things, if you, we have people listening who run companies or um, young people who are wanting to start their own company or nonprofit, what are some of the things you do to support your people or bring them together? I would say that uh, over time, you know, you realize that a leader is not so much the person who has the best idea mm-hmm. or, or who tells everybody what to do. A leader lets everybody else implement what they think is the yeah. best idea. And when you've surrounded yourself with really good people, there's a lot of good ideas to be had. Getting everybody to consider and respect everybody else's opinion as a good idea because you and I might have similar ideas or different ideas about a topic. And and if we can respectfully listen to each other and then you know, take each other's perspective to heart and then come up with a good solution. It might be a combination of both our ideas. Yeah. God gave us two eyes, two ears, and a mouth. <laughs> and if you use them in proportion, you can learn a lot. Yeah, so, nice. you know, we're talking right here a lot, but, you know, if, if you spend 20% of your time or less list of talking and then the rest of it listening and observing, you can really solve a lot of problems. And so, to me, you've got to let your people grow. Yeah. And and, and I, I always try to think that the people that are at our company now are are going to grow and maybe grow and leave us. Mm-hmm. And that's not a sadness. That's, to me, a success yeah. in developing people where they go and grow and do their own thing and go on and move on to better things. That, to me, is success. Yeah. I, I don't look at that. It's a sad thing for us. We have to adapt as they've left and, and fill the gap that they've mm-hmm. left us. But I look at that as a successful thing rather than a, uh, oh, my gosh, the sky is falling thing. I heard a few years ago someone said to me, a true leader is develops leaders who develops other leaders. And yeah. I like that. Like it's not just about developing those that are in your orbit. It's about that they, they then have the skill set to go on and yeah. develop like sort of this lineage, which I really love. Now, the last question I have about entrepreneurialism is that we have a large number of young people in our school and beyond who want to make a difference in the world. And they see a way of doing that is becoming like a social entrepreneur or an entrepreneur and sort of enact, like sort of bringing to life their ideas. What are sort of like the, a few bits of advice you have for young people or maybe, you know, people who have got a side hustle and then want to go on and, and sort of do that full time? What advice do you have or what are the core skills that you feel they need to have to be an entrepreneur? Unmitigated drive. Mm. I mean, because you're going to be told no, you're going to be seen no, you're going to have bad news, you're going to have bad results. You, you've got to really push through that. That uh, strength of character, I think, is really important to to be committed to what you want to do. The ability to, to say, you know what, 
I really wanted to go into business making candy spider webs, but nobody really wants to buy candy spider webs. And, <laughs> and so I'm going to go into something else. I'm going yeah. to do something else. I always encourage when somebody wants to leave uh, and go and hang their shingle out and do their own thing, I, I always encourage them to run their side hustle for as long as they can while they maintain their, their day job because there's a lot of security in your day job. And, and while you can you know, fine tune and hone your side hustle to figure out what your right message is and what your right product is and what your right business case is and how much money you're gonna need and all of the, those things that go into having a business, the safety and security of your day job will enable you to have less stress worrying about how you're gonna pay your bills and give you more time to fine tune your side hustle to yeah. turn it into a real business. Because once you can apply stress-free or stress-reduced thinking to your side hustle to turn it into a business, you're gonna get good thoughts yeah. there. But if you're desperate, you're gonna sell the first thing that comes to mind because you gotta pay the bills. So so really fine tune that with security of, of, your, of your day job and be open to listening. Because if there are tons and tons of people who will help. I, I mean, I always try to help entrepreneurs and young business owners and and my nephew is one and and he's going to to college full time and he's got a successful business that he runs while he's in school <laughs> and then in the summertime he works at it all the time and and he's figured out how to subcontract guys to do work that nice. for people to call him during school and he's 22 right so I will help a young entrepreneur I will help a young engineer I'll help anybody who wants to listen and and I think the world is generally like that if you're interested in in people and making it better, right? Just like you said, leaders develop leaders who develop leaders. And and everybody wants to leave that legacy and make the world a better place. So everybody will help. Yeah. People are less inclined to help somebody who knows everything, who doesn't <laughs> who doesn't want to listen yeah. and doesn't want to take any idea other than her own. So yeah. so just be open minded and, and listen and use the resources around you that you have because there are a ton if you, you may not even realize the resources that are around you. The people willing to help. So I just have a few questions to ask uh, and then without sort of much thinking, just like jumping straight in. So what is the book or books you most frequently recommend to others? I am thinking about this. I, <laughs> uh, my kids joke that I don't get to read very often because I read so much at work. The Skunk Works book by Dale Brown that explains like the Lockheed Martin story about developing okay. stealth technology okay. and in working in the 60s and the, the 70s about how they developed technology. And you think about you know, what was developed back when people didn't have supercomputers and all the other things, it really empowers you to think, I can do that too. Yeah. I, I don't need a supercomputer and a multi-billion dollar glass facaded business to tell me how to do something. I can solve a problem with my brain. I would say that book about Skunk Works it is amazing. If you could learn a new skill, what would it be and why? Wow. Languages, I would think. I think learning another language, I, I took five years of French. I'm okay at it. Uh, I've been exposed to a lot of Spanish, so I'm okay at it. But but really understanding some of the languages that are out there now, I, I think it's just, it always helps you understand context. Yeah. There's, you know, there's translation, there's there's all kinds of services, but it doesn't, that doesn't help you hear the native speaker and then understand the native speaker. So yeah. I, I would say I would learn more about another language. In the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? 
I have really focused on perspective and and gratitude. I would mm. say we're in an area where we're very fortunate. We have plenty of opportunities. We have plenty of access to everything that we need. Being a business owner and understanding what um, people need and and how you can help people, I think, is is Im- impacted by that recognition that we're in a good place. And so, what that does for me then is is help me realize how I can help somebody else, and that makes me feel better. Yeah. And so then, when you feel better, then you make better decisions. You're not as stressed out. You're in a different place. It, it, maybe it's a kumbaya place, but it's a it's a more peaceful place to make decisions. Yeah. And, and then so then you make decisions based on all the information that you have. So I've I've tried to work on on that mental wellness and not to get so stressed because it's easy to get stressed. So being able to kind of focus on that has been helpful for me. You had such a unique career. You started in automotive racing. You're now an entrepreneur working as a defense contractor. Like it's a very unique path. But whichever path of that, whether it's the motor racing, the being an entrepreneur, how, what would advice would you give people? I, I when I was in racing, I really leveraged all the technologies and the folks that we had uh, had opportunity to contact. And when I started MSI, I didn't lose those people in my context list in my Rolodex, I just looked for an opportunity to work with them again because ah. when you're successful with a group, it was more recognizing that I have been successful with people, I think. Mm-hmm. And, and I have another problem now that requires me to be successful with rubber seals or steel materials or whatever. So let me call the folks that I was successful with mm-hmm. in those things. So I really leveraged the people that I had been successful with before. I explained to them what I was doing new and they they were like, hey, we were successful with this guy before. This is a legitimate problem. Let's try to solve it. And so rather than try to do discovery learning on a new solution, really recognizing that that the problems I was solving were very similar to racing, I could use the same skill sets and problem-solving skills that I had and apply those again and be successful again. And you know, most of the times that's actually proven out very well. And the last question I have is what inspires you? People – attitudes, motivation, people who have energy, who want to do better. Yeah. That's, I'm, I, I have all the time in the world for people that want to do better. Yeah. All the time in the world. Well, David, thank you so much for all your time today. It's uh, from a personal note, it's been incredible getting to know your wife and incredible and amazing, amazing children over the last few years. And we feel so blessed that your family's here at our school. And we truly appreciate all the, the time you gave us to tour your facility and f- today as well. I'm sure people enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. We appreciate everything. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. I, like I said, I've got all the time in the world for, for Davidson Day. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to the Davidson Day School Community Podcast, which is hosted by Pete Moore, head of school at Davidson Day. The podcast is recorded on campus in the heart of the Lake Norman area. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear them. Email your thoughts to podcasts at davidsonday.org. That's podcasts at davidsonday.org.